Welcome back to the Armchair Trader podcast. And this morning we are talking about precious metals. We're talking about investing in gold and silver. And on the show today, we have Nitesh Shah, who is head of commodities research at Wisdom Tree. And he will be joining us to talk a little bit more about these important markets, particularly important now, as we've seen some some upside movement in both gold and silver prices in recent weeks. Welcome to the show, Nitesh. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So um, just to get started, uh, Wisdom Tree, uh, for those people who are not familiar with the company, can you give us a quick summary of Wisdom Tree and what you guys do? Yeah, so Wisdom Tree, we're a, an international provider of exchange traded products. Um, and here in Europe, uh, our product suite in exchange traded products is very much, uh, well, it, it, there's a, with a large concentration of commodity factor products. Uh, we created the world's first uh, commodity exchange traded products here in Europe and we've been growing that suite since. Um, so we've got a uh, product base uh, in Europe of just under 30 billion uh, as of assets under management. And of that, uh, close to 20 billion, uh, or more than 20 billion of that are in commodities. And the largest proportion of that is actually in precious metals as well. So uh, we follow everything that, um, that drives the commodity markets in, in quite some detail. Great. So you know your stuff when it comes to talking about gold and silver then? That's right. We uh, we do have a, a strong uh, client following in both uh, gold and silver. Uh, we also have uh, platinum and palladium products as well. So uh, yeah, we do cover the full suite. So to get started, um, precious metals, gold and silver. Um, if you look back over the history of financial markets, these are assets that investors like to buy when we see um, turbulence, political risk, um, inflation. Um, We're also in a much higher interest rate environment than we have been for quite a long time. For many investors who've been in the market for only a few years, um, this is starting to look like a a much more different environment than they may have been used to. And they may not actually have exposure at the moment to gold and silver. Um, what is it about precious metals investments that, that make investors attracted to them during periods like this and, and therefore drive the price up? Why, why do people like to buy them when there's high inflation and how, how do they protect your portfolio? Both gold and silver um, tend to have quite special properties. Um, and gold in particular is quite different to most commodities. Um, The typical commodity, you'd expect um, supply and demand balances to be really the things that drives their prices. If you take um, copper, for example, you'd expect the price of copper to be really driven by um, how much demand there is for copper versus how much supply is coming out of the mines and uh, produced by the refineries. Uh, When it comes to gold, it operates almost like a pseudo-currency. Um, the balance of supply and demand of the physical uh, don't matter so much for price, um, but it tends to be a big bellwether for economic conditions. And gold is quite typically a defensive asset class uh, in the sense that when you have signs of the economy cooling uh, or you have uh, threats of um, financial instability or even geopolitical instability, gold tends to perform really strongly. But that's, you know, 
that's not the full story. Um, gold actually performs also well during times of economic strength as well. In times of economic strength, you very often have a lot of inflation being created. Um, it's a byproduct of a hot economy, and gold tends to perform well then. And in that way, gold is almost a unique asset class. Um, it tends to perform well at both extremes in good and bad economic times. Um, uh, and no other asset class we can see does that. And therefore, when you add gold to a portfolio because of its unique behavioral traits, it tends to act as one of the best diversifiers because nothing else in your portfolio behaves that way. And if there's only you know if there's only one free lunch in the uh, investing world, and that is of diversification, and diversification is enhanced when you have uh, low correlations in gold, with its slightly weird uh, behavioral characteristics, provides that that the element of uh, diversification that no other asset class can. So looking at that sort of inflation aspect, um, yes, uh, we've had inflation. Uh, at sort of multi-decade highs in in the recent years. And that has come as a result of um, the response to the uh, COVID pandemic with uh, many central banks throwing um, huge amounts of monetary stimulus, uh, but also fiscal stimulus uh, in that sort of post-COVID period. Uh, but on top of that, we've had huge supply shocks. Uh, last year, we had the Ukraine war um, as one big example of um, a supply shock where Russia as a, uh, you know, one of the largest providers of energy resources, both in terms of oil and natural gas, being almost shut off from many of the big uh, developed nations in terms of imports. So huge both demand and supply side shocks driving inflation higher People often ask, well, why didn't gold do a lot better last year? Um, we had had inflation at multi-decade highs, yet last year, gold prices only were basically flat, 0.4% uh, up. Um, it's because uh, gold was facing major headwinds from other uh, areas. I mentioned that the central banks were stimulating um, through monetary uh, growth uh, in, in prior years, but last year they turned course and started withdrawing a lot of that uh, monetary stimulus. Now, one thing we know about monetary stimulus is that there's huge lags. So while the stimulus came in place in the post-2020 period, that was driving inflation much higher last year when the monetary stimulus was being withdrawn, was now starting to face the impact of that monetary withdrawal with cooling inflation. But last year, inflation was red hot, but uh, bond yields uh, shot up and the dollar appreciated like crazy because the, the Federal Reserve in the US was um, putting its foot on the brakes a lot harder than other central banks at that point in time. So two headwinds for, for gold, uh, dollar appreciation, uh, a spike in bond yields uh, that was set against that inflationary uh, backdrop, net-net, gold came out flat. Um, but uh, you have to put all these things together to understand that. Now, when we come into sort of 2023, uh, what we've seen is that the you know 
although the inflation picture has been cooling, uh, we've seen that uh, that that shock to the bond market fall away. Uh, dollar has stabilized somewhat compared to last year, um, and that's allowed gold prices to rise. And uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we started seeing gold prices head above uh, that two thousand psychological, uh, you know. Uh, level um, uh, it slipped a little bit below that right now, but um, that's mainly as a result of bond headwinds and dollar headwinds falling away. And indeed, on top of that, you've seen investor sentiment towards gold uh, actually pick up as well as we're seeing increasing risk of um, recession uh, pick up as well. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of investors have gone towards the safe haven asset of gold. Do you think that there's any truth to these rumors I've been hearing about um, some central banks and state-owned entities also buying gold? Because I know some some precious metal analysts have been saying that that, that also is something that's changed really since the start of the year, although I think some of that, that central bank buying may have been going on in Q4. But that, again, is something that's difficult to really properly establish because the gold market is is not that transparent. Yeah, I think you touched on uh, several uh, key points there. Um, so central bank buying of gold was extremely strong even last year, uh, 2022, where we, where, you know, we established we had relatively weak uh, gold price behavior. Uh in 2022, central bank buying of gold was at an all-time high. Um, so the data that the World Gold Council has uh, put goes back to the mid-1960s. Last year was the highest in, in, in nominal terms. And we saw very strong buying from uh, countries like Turkey, um, uh, China, which hadn't reported any gold purchases uh, since 2019, uh, started coming back in, um, and as of last month, um, Russia restated actually its purchases uh, from from uh, last year. Last year they weren't reporting any purchases, but now they've actually gone back and reported what purchases they made, and that was we thought was the big missing part because um, Russian refiners um, from March of last year were actually um, taken out of the international markets because. Uh, of of the war, they were uh, sanctioned. Um, so the only uh, buyer of, or, or only sizable buyer of uh, Russian gold we expected was the central bank, um, and they weren't reporting anything. Now we know that they're actually been purchasing. Coming into this year in 2023, uh, central banks and uh, monetary authorities um, look like they're keeping up with the pace uh, that they set last year. Uh, we've been seeing very strong uh, gold buying so far uh, in, in at least the first quarter of this year. And you've seen you know, uh, countries which haven't been making any large purchases um, recently coming back into the market. Uh, so we saw the Monetary Authority of Singapore, for example, uh, make some quite large uh, gold purchases and in doing so, they almost increased their uh, gold holdings by more than 40%. So it's not just a what we were assuming as a developing world uh, central bank um, phenomenon. It's even going into the developed world. Now, there's been a lot of um, desire by central banks to uh, diversify their 
currency base. And I think what happened last year spooked them. When sanctions were placed against Russia, uh, a lot of central banks uh, became quite spooked because the, you know the dollar can be somewhat weaponized and turned as a an instrument to um, uh, punish the uh, so-called bad actors, uh, and therefore uh, many developed being well, central banks that looked at their, uh, you know, their FX holdings and said, well, we could do with less dollar and probably a bit more something else. But uh, the euro, the yen, other fiat currencies um, are all subject to the same uh, risk, right? Because it's the G7 countries that are placing these these sanctions on, on, on countries. And indeed, it's a trend that had already been existing before that when you... Um, have FX holdings of other fiat currencies, you're essentially importing in monetary policy from other countries. And a lot of uh, countries seek to minimize that risk. And therefore, gold, the pseudo currency that's not uh, got any links to any of the central bank, um, uh, is free from uh, you know currency debasement or uh, the risk of um, being subject to uh, sanctions. So um, that's one of the reasons why the central banks had come into in, in, in larger force. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to um, impact on price, um, my modeling work has generally shown that central bank buying of gold doesn't really impact price that much, um, mainly because you only find out that the central banks had bought this gold many, many months after they made the purchases. For example, the, the, the Russian example, we only find out today, you know, what purchases Russia had made, uh, you know, during the course of last year. Um, indeed, even China's purchases that they've been reporting since November of uh, 2022, we, we, it's more likely they've been purchasing throughout the course of the year, that, but they would just start the reporting in uh, later on in the year. Um, so the actual purchases, we don't actually believe impact price that much. Um, and and you're and you're right. You know the lacks of transparency there probably uh, means that uh, it, it, its impact on price is probably somewhat muted. But it's it's an interesting phenomenon to observe because it um, indicates uh, you know by looking at the rationale for their purchases, you can get some some sort of an indication of geopolitical risks um, and financial risks. That are prevalent in the market uh, that uh, that central banks are maybe changing their behaviour on the back of. And uh, you you guys are managers of exchange traded funds. Um, obviously, gold has been around for a long time, a lot longer than say e- than ETFs have. Um, investors have bought gold through a number of different avenues traditionally, and I just wondered if you could um, shed some light on how the ETF structure stacks up against some of those other avenues like you know buying physical bullion or buying gold futures in the market yeah you're right uh gold has been in yeah, an asset class that's been around for millennia um and etfs didn't exist uh, you know in in you know pre-biblical terms uh times sorry um so you know physical gold is obviously probably one of the most uh uh, obvious ways of accessing the gold markets. Um, now, when it comes to physical gold, the institutional markets tend to invest in uh, large bars, 400-ounce bars, um, in the typically in the London bullion 
Metal Markets Association kind of uh, governed uh, region, uh, which defines the the quality uh, of the of the, of the bullion. Uh, not just the, in in the physical uh, properties, but also the manner in which it comes to being as well. So um, you know there are responsible sourcing criteria that uh, LBMA refiners are, are subject to. That's the uh, physical market, but obviously there are when it, when you get to retail markets, there are often uh, smaller bullion bars, uh, you know kilo bars, um, even. Some people uh, consider buying pieces of jewelry a, a type of investment in the retail world. Um, there's also uh, investments that you can, uh, you know, ways of accessing gold through the futures markets. Uh, so investing in contracts uh, for uh, delivery of, of gold uh, at a future date in uh, future point in time. Um, now these uh, the, the you know futures contracts uh, that they trade on exchange um, you don't have to take delivery of of the in, in uh, of, of the gold you can keep rolling uh, the, these contracts now as with every futures market um, there is a curve structure uh, to consider um, so gold for delivery several months into the future tends to be priced at a higher level than gold. Uh, for almost immediate delivery, and that reflects uh, a couple of things: one, storage cost, uh, but two, uh, prevailing interest rates as well. Uh, typically, that curve structure means that when you're investing in gold um, for delivery in a couple of months' time, um, that that futures price, as time goes on, uh, the price of that contract converges towards a spot. And that acts as a little bit of a drag on price performance. Um, so that's uh, one thing to consider. But on the flip side, with uh, investing in futures markets, you get you know a lot of capital efficiency because you can invest in, on margin there. Now, uh, ETFs so or exchange traded products uh, can either track physical gold or it can track a, a rolling futures uh, strategy. And we offer products that uh, you know go to both markets, um, but you know the lion's share of um, investor demand is for products that track the physical, um, and there's several reasons for that. Uh, one is because of that uh, issue that I mentioned on earlier on in the futures markets, the curve structure when you see the uh, price decay uh, from you know as you approach spot. The so-called contango effect um, that acts as a drag on performance. You don't get that on the physical market, um, and therefore uh, you get better sources of return going to the physical market. And also, um, a lot of investors take greater comfort in something that's physically backed. So our full suite of uh, commodity physically backed products. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the, there's actual gold sitting there in a vault. You go on our website, you can see uh, the serial numbers of the bars that are held uh, backing that. And that obviously provides a stronger credit uh, protection for the end investor. And, and following on from that, um, there's been a lot of discussion in the uh, bullion market and the wider investment market about responsibly sourced gold. Um what is responsibly sourced gold? Uh, why is it an issue? 
and how do guys like investment managers, guys like yourselves, keep track of responsibly sourced gold or actually source it in the first place? Yeah, so responsibly sourced gold um, is all about how has that gold come to being? Uh, what's the provenance of it? You know, what's the environmental impact of uh, of, of, the, of the gold? And the gold markets probably are slightly more advanced than most commodity markets in developing set of criteria for uh, responsible sourcing. London Bullion Metals, uh, Lon- London Bullion Markets Association (LBMA), uh, who I mentioned earlier on, the so-called gatekeepers for the um, institutional gold markets here in London, uh, back in 2012, they started to define um, responsible source uh, criteria. Now, the LBMA basically look after the refining community. And back in 2012, when they started these responsible sourcing criteria, their main focus was around um, anti-money laundering uh, and know know your customer criteria. But each iteration of their responsible criteria um, since then has been expanding on that and improving on the uh, on, on the on, on that criteria. And um, when they put out their um, version eight of their criteria back in 2018, which which came into effect in 2019, um, they formally introduced uh, ESG. Uh, environmental, social, and governance terms into their uh, responsible sourcing guidance. Um, and in, since then, they've actually been expanding on that uh, criteria even more. So back in uh, the tail end of 2021, they introduced their version 9 of their criteria, which became effective in uh, from January 2022. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the, the criteria just being incrementally improved over time. So we at Wisdom Tree, our entire gold range, physically backed gold range, is post-2012. And an increasing amount of our gold is uh, post-2019. And we have products like our Wisdom Tree Core Gold, which is exclusively 100% backed by uh, bars post 2022 even so we're you know that, that, that one product basically adheres to the uh, the criteria that has been sourced uh, with the tightest um, uh, responsibly sourced criteria so um, you know that, that's looking at this with the LBMA uh, bullion markets um, there are some clients out there that want to see gold um, even uh, that that idea to even greater standards than, than that, and uh, that's one of the areas that we as Wisdom Tree will be looking at in terms of how do we provide uh, gold solutions that can go even beyond uh, the, the the standard industry, um, uh, you know, uh, standard. Um, there are some difficulties there, you know, uh, to to move outside of the. Um, you know, the traditional benchmarks, um, you could uh, be looking at gold that has lower liquidity potentially than the, st- than the standard. And if one of the key things about the gold market is it's one of the most liquid uh, commodity markets out there. If you do something that's slightly different, do you fragment that liquidity? Yeah, that, that's one of the things that we are trying to uh, solve for right now. And I, I wanted to just move on to silver. Um 
the other you know, big precious metal that investors are are interested in and following very keenly at the moment. Um, looking at silver specifically, uh, what are the main drivers of the silver price when you compared with gold? I mean, what what makes it different in that respect? Yeah, so silver and gold are tightly uh, associated, um, and if you look at the uh, correlation between the two metals, you've got a roughly eighty percent correlation. In, in price behavior, uh, looking at data going all the way back to 1990. Um, but as I describe gold as that pseudo currency, um, silver is probably a bit more like a regular commodity where supply and demand of physical uh, units of silver actually matter for prices. And uh, the way we look at um, demand for silver well, more than 50% of end demand for silver goes into industrial applications. Um, things like electronics, uh, photovoltaics, so uh, solar panels, um, they're a couple of the key drivers of, of, of silver demand, uh, alongside photography and jewellery and uh, um, you know, uh, silver plates and things like that. Um, the supply side... Silver is also um, a little bit more complex uh, than gold. Um, most gold is mined for um, directly for that gold, so you have specific gold mines. Whereas with silver, um, most of the silver supply that comes to to market is a byproduct of mining for other metals like copper, nickel, zinc, for example. So seventy five percent is basically byproduct. Only 25% of silver is mined directly for silver itself. Um, when, um, when we think about price behavior of silver, we've got, you know, um, alongside our gold models that, that I mentioned earlier on, we also have silver models. The biggest input for our silver model is gold price, the gold price itself. But the way we judge uh, demand uh, for silver is to looking at um, indicators of industrial demand. And we use things like uh, purchasing manager indices, uh, manufacturing purchasing manager indices there. Uh, on the supply side, we look at the inventory of uh, silver, looking at uh, uh, silver stocks on uh, the uh, futures exchanges, um, being one of the most timely indicators of uh, silver demand there. Uh, but we also look at the um, capital expenditure that goes into uh, mines globally uh, across all metals, uh, and the reason for that is, uh, you know, most of the silver comes as a, as a byproduct of mining from the other metals. So we look at the mining industry in broad terms there. Um, so we have, alongside gold, we have a constructive view on on silver, uh, mainly because gold prices are rising. Um, the silver may face a little bit of a headwind because. Um, Industrial activity may cool on the back of all these central banks pressing on the brakes very hard and cooling to try to cool down their economies to reduce that sort of inflation risk. Um, but uh, what we are seeing on the uh, you know on the physical supply side is um, uh, you know a lot of um, uh, silver uh, supply deficits actually. So the demand for physical silver. Is outstripping uh, the physical uh, supply at the moment, 
And that means that we're eating above ground inventory at this point in time. Gotcha. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that because I I, I talk to a lot of um, miners and silver analysts. And obviously you get these guys who are the perpetual silver bulls. They think silver is going to go to the moon. Um, but one of the arguments we've we've had, what one of them you've just touched on, is the fact that there is uh, not enough silver being mined at the moment um, versus um, actual silver demand, particularly that industrial demand um, that you've spoken about. Um, the other argument we hear a lot about, though, is the solar farm argument, because the they're saying that, OK, you've got this situation not enough silvers being mined. Part of that's because of the disruption from COVID. But on top of that, there's this massive global shift towards clean energy. And that requires um, the construction of acres and acres and acres of new solar farms. I've just been to Portugal um, and seen quite a lot of um, brand new solar farms stretching across the Algarve. So this is not an idle argument. Um, do you think that that shift to clean energy could actually have a new dynamic effect on the silver price? Is is what they're saying got any any real um, credence to it? Yeah. So solar uh, photovoltaics are probably one of the most um, strongest sources of growth for silver at, at this point in time. So, yes, I think there is a lot of legs to that to the argument. Um, this energy transition that we're in right now, you know, the movement away from uh, burning hydrocarbons um, and moving towards uh, renewable sources of energy is happening at, at lightning pace. The Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. Um, has really sort of changed the uh, tone of things, uh, you know, lots of countries had all these grand policy goals about um, uh, climate change and decarbonizing, but had very few policies in place that helped uh, actually meet that. But with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, that's changed the the the, the, the tone um, completely. And with the US having implemented the Inflation Reduction Act, and assuming we can get, actually get a budget for it. Uh, it, you know, the uh, other regions like uh, the European Union are going to have to come up with something that competes against that because European Union was probably going to be one of the biggest losers of um, the IRA from, from, from the US. The IRA basically is trying to capture more of the value chain of that renewable transition uh, and take it away from China uh, because lots of the components of um renewables is produced in China, whether you look at the battery value chain or, uh, you know, solar panels, etc., cetera, um, are produced in China. As that moves more towards uh, US, we're probably going to see some uh, cost inflation uh, going on. So uh, that will probably uh, be something that drives up uh, silver prices in of its own. But as you get the as you get Europe and other nations actually trying to protect their markets, that's probably going to drive up of a lot of the raw materials uh, that are needed for the energy transition, including silver. Um, on top of that, um, we are seeing salts, you know, we've visibly been seeing solar installations increase over the last uh, few years. Um, that process of um, thrifting of silver use in each individual panel has largely come run its course. Um, so in previous years, we've been seeing 
each solar panel use slightly lower amounts of uh, silver, being silver being one of the most expensive components that goes into these solar panels. But the technological um, ability to keep doing that has run its course. And in fact, the next generation of solar panels that are likely to see more uh, growth in demand are actually looking like they're using higher solar uh, loadings as well. Um, so, you know, I, I think the the the, the photovoltaic uh, story is going to be very strong uh, for silver. Um, and just go back to your point on the um, supply demand equation, and that um, uh, uh, you know silver deficits. Um, yeah, we're looking at silver deficits when we sort of exclude the sort of investment component uh, from uh, the. Uh, from the equation, uh, but it is clear that s silver investors are um, quite bifurcated. So you've got the retail market where silver demand right now is extremely strong, is extremely strong during 2022 as well. Uh, but the institutional market um, is typically the investors that go into uh, exchange-traded uh, products like the ones we offer are somewhat muted. So the demand that was there from the retail-dominated physical side had been sort of almost satisfied by the um, uh, units that came out of the ET ETPs. Also, the deficits that are being driven by the high industrial demand is also being satisfied by the ETF uh, uh, market or the ETP market um, going into the latter half of this year if we do start to see price rallies in um, uh, driven by silver we may see that reverse course as well because uh, some of the physical markets are that, that little bit more price sensitive and if we do see uh, a lot more demand coming from the institutional side uh, we may see that uh, flow reverse course uh, so that's something maybe to watch out for Great. And, and just finally, you just mentioned there the fact that in the, in the silver market, there's a there's a bit of a disconnect between the institutional appetite versus the retail appetite. I mean, that's obviously something that you guys at Wisdom Tree can see. What, what is it that why does that happen? Why do you get a situation where inst institutional investors and retail investors have completely different um, sentiment towards something like silver um, in the commodities market? Yeah, I think um, the institutional markets uh, tend to be somewhat distracted by uh, other asset classes. You know, where when you know recently we've been seeing a bit of pickup in in equity markets, and I think uh, there's been more flow into some of the cyclical assets as a, as a as a result of that, and less to uh, to the uh, to the defensive markets like uh, silver and even gold hasn't seen a huge amount of ETF. Uh, ETP flow, despite the fact that prices have been quite uh, uh, strong. Um, retail markets tend to be uh, maybe a little bit more uh, concerned about uh, some, you know, geopolitical risks um, with, you know, various election cycles, uh, debt ceiling concerns have also driven a little bit more uh, flows into the defensive assets among the uh, the retail community hasn't really been picked up that much by the ETP market yet. Um, however, we are seeing, at least in the futures markets, a uh, big pickup in uh, you know in in sort of uh, speculative interest on on the futures markets, and it may be just a matter of time before ETP markets actually uh, you know catch that bid as well. So. Um, 
you know, that's something that uh, uh, may be yet to come. But at the moment, uh, I think the ETP market is slightly more uh, focused on flows in flowing back into some of the uh, cyclical asset classes like equities. And uh, uh, we have seen a number of uh, strong flows into, um, you know, into other uh, commodities at, at this point in time and less sort of interest in gold. I think maybe as the risk becomes somewhat more heightened um, in terms of, say, recession risk or, you know, a slip up in, say, the, uh, the uh, debt negotiations, uh, maybe that could drive a little bit more flow back into the defensives. Uh, but yeah, it, it, there has been that clear sort of demarcation between uh, retail and uh, institutional flows into gold and silver. And, and very quickly, in the course of this discussion, we've talked about ETFs and ETPs. Can you just quickly say what the difference is between the two? Because I know we've used them interchangeably in the course of this discussion. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I would say the correct term to be using is uh, exchange-traded products, um, because the, uh, the the most of the physically backed gold and silver uh, exchange-traded products are not um, technically exchange-traded funds; they're exchange-traded uh, debt instruments uh, because of the structure. Um, funds is usually used for the sort of equity uh, structure. Um, but that's a bit of a sort of t- technicalities, really, um, you know, exchange traded uh, gold and silver is typically called exchange traded commodities built as a sort of debt instrument. Uh, the umbrella term for all of these things, both funds and the exchange traded commodities are exchange traded products. So that's kind of using the more generic term exchange traded products. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Nitesh. And thanks for coming on the show to talk about gold and silver today. We really appreciate it. You're most welcome. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com, for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.